Hello, and welcome to the Haiku P podcast. Today I have a reading from a book of haiku, Senryu and Haibun, that will certainly get your grey cells working. A finely crafted book that is a commentary on our time and a history of our times. One I think you're going to enjoy. It's Upwelling by Lorraine A. Padden. But before we get to enjoy the reading, a little bit of housekeeping. This month, I'm going to email those of you who are on my mailing list with a haiku challenge. It's going to be spontaneous and last minute, and will only be available to those of you on the mailing list. If you're not on it, you can sign up on the Poetry Bee website. If you are on it, keep your eyes peeled. I've changed email provider and I notice that some of you have emails that are bouncing for a variety of reasons. If you think you should have received a mail from us, check your spam and perhaps make sure our mailings are accepted. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. And for those of you who sent me your split sequences, I'll be letting you know the good or bad news by the end of the month. That's April 2023. If you've not heard by then, check in with me. Things do go astray in the ether, don't they? Apart from our flash haiku in April, the next reading period is haiku and senryu in May. Do check the submissions page of the website. Again, you don't want to miss out. And now for the main event. Lorraine A. Padden and her book, Upwelling. So Lorraine Padden is joining me today to read from her book, Upwelling, her debut book of haiku, Senryu, Tanka and Haibun. Lorraine, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, Patricia, thank you. It is such an honour and pleasure to be with you. Lovely to have you. And you know, I don't think you need much further introduction because I think our viewers and listeners will know your work because you're a regular here on the podcast. But of course, they may not have read your book a book which might possibly have taken on a little extra, more poignant meaning for you, Lorraine. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the lovely cover for your book and what it now means to you. Yes, thank you, Patricia. I will. Yes, my dear sister uh, was an artist. She passed away quite suddenly in December of last year. And I had chosen uh, a woodblock print of hers to put on the cover of my book. And it was a real uh, honor uh, to, to, to do that and, and celebrate her aesthetic gifts in, in that way. So yes, it's a little more poignant, but uh, it was just uh, a real pleasure to, to feature her on the book as well as my own work. That's wonderful. It's, it's so lovely to have that link isn't it um and Lorraine I am honestly so sorry for your loss thank really you so much thank you so I think you know what we'll do we'll we'll dedicate this one to Penelope shall thank we you. that would be perfect <laughs> good and before we start we should let people know where they can get hold of this book oh thank you so much <laughs> lorrainepadden.com simple okay. website lorrainepadden.com it should come right up there and uh, we're in our second printing uh, red moon press uh did the first printing and so now we're we've switched over to print on demand through amazon wonderful and don't worry if you haven't caught that the details will be in the show notes lorraine there's a lovely blurb on the back of the book which i think captures the essence of your work 
The blurb is by Kristen Lindquist, author of It's Always Comes Back. She says of Upwelling that it showcases Lorraine Patton's satirical wit in the service of her deep sensitivity to contemporary social issues. And she also points out that although many of your pieces are on the surface witty, they often land a punch which, to quote Kristen again, give voice to the failings of humanity while not letting herself or the reader off the hook. And with that in mind, I think we should really hear from you and our listeners and viewers can make up their own mind. So don't forget, when you've heard this, email Lorraine or myself and let us know what you think, because feedback's always important. Lorraine, over to you. Please read to us. Thank you so much. And thank you for for, uh, quoting Kristen. Black-eyed Susan, the garden she left behind. Black-eyed Susan, the garden she left behind. I read this one before I truly had a handle on your voice. And it could go either way, just a straight, nostalgic, wistful piece, or literally a hard-hitting piece. Which way did you want us to read it? Many of these poems... I kind of consider both and. They might have a hard edge to them or uh, allude to suffering, to abuse, to trauma. Uh, In this case, Black Eyed Susan is, it's obviously the name of a wonderful type of daisy, but it also could be a woman's first name and she could be escaping a, a traumatic, abusive situation. And she loses something by leaving, by saving herself. So in this one in particular, yes, it could be very tragic, uh, but it's about abuse and escape, trauma and survival. So some of the work in this collection really is darker, doesn't really have any type of an optimistic read perhaps that you might, a reader might have. But there are a few though that I think really try to straddle that line. I mean, there's something wonderful about a woman saving herself from a horrible situation. And, and I think that can emerge from a reason, uh, from, from a reading from this poem, as well as the reality that perhaps she's been physically wounded by that relationship. Yeah, I mean, when I first read it, and even even reading it as the hard-hitting one, I, I, I find hope in it, actually. Yeah. I, I do yeah. find hope in it. Some of these pieces, as we go along, some of them are quite dark, but Kristen's right, there's humour too. So shall we hear some more forceful poems, perhaps? Sure. Uh, This next one uh, is um, a monostick or a a one-line haiku. Back to school special on flak jackets and masks. Back to school special on flak jackets and masks. This next one is a a traditional three-line. Exposed bedrock. The all-white jury acquits. Exposed bedrock. The all-white jury acquits. Do you find it cathartic to write about these social issues, these societal issues? I do. I do. Uh, This collection arose out of many months of my own visceral, personal reaction to what was happening in the world around me. Mm -hmm. And the response arose through these poems. Uh, And ultimately, 
it would be wonderful if a reader or writer takes these poems, takes the ideas or the, the images, the realities embedded, our common humanity that's embedded in these poems and let it inspire their own work, whether that comes out as haiku or visual art or prose or, or, or anything else, movement, visual art. Uh, it, I, I really don't have any control over these works except perhaps my own intention, but I, mm -hmm. I love all work that really continues to blossom and inspire other readers and writers and artists. Let me share a quote with you from uh, Christine Todd Whitman now. She is a politician and I'm not an American, so I don't really know what side of the political argument it comes she comes down on. So for me, that's irrelevant. But what she said, uh, or apparently said, was that anyone who thinks that they're too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito in the room. I thought that was very appropriate to, to this work. I mean, you've talked about you hoping that other artists and creatives would pick this up and, and find some inspiration to, for their work. And if they do, and hopefully they will, then that spreads the message a little bit further. It's like a, um, a rolling stone, isn't it? It gathers momentum. It could make such a difference if people really take on board some of the things you're saying. Yes, I, I, I agree. In it. And I also think that um, in in the world of haiku, I mean, there, there are other uh, sort of, you know, truth-telling socially engaged poems out there. There are other haiku poets that, that are working in this in this medium, but I also feel that that perhaps there is also a shift toward incorporating, bearing witness to things that are happening around us that that are bleak and dark and letting that inform our work as haiku poets. And it's part of our common humanity. I mean, even if I'm sitting on my couch here in California watching what's happening in the war in Ukraine, that is deeply impactful to me. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. Witnessing what's happening in society around me and how it affects me actually also very directly is something that I think uh, needs to show up in our work. At least that's what arose in me as I was exploring different images and different themes in my own work, this really rose to the surface of something that I didn't want to turn away from. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can all go out into our backyards and be beautifully moved. Really, there, there's a transcendence about the moments that we discover in the natural world, perhaps in our backyards or in the parks where we live or wh wherever we are, the view from our window. But I live 15 minutes from a, an incredible humanitarian crisis happening at the border. Mm -hmm. at the U.S. border with Mexico, 15 minutes from my front door. Mm. So I choose not to look away from that and, and only dwell in what might be beautiful and transcendent and in my backyard in a way that is my backyard as well. And I think it deserves to find a way into our expressive work. Actually, you've hit on a topic that really interests me at the moment. I'm very interested in the role that we haiku poets play in recording history. A little moment in history. Oh, yes. And um, I think the next one that I'm going to ask you to read, um, well, we'll talk about it afterwards. Perhaps if you could read it and we'll come back to, to what I want to say. RBG, the outspoken pattern of a lace collar. RBG, the outspoken pattern of a lace collar. 
Now, I'm a European, so I somehow think I don't get the full impact of this. Lorraine, tell me, tell me the story, because this does take, this is an historic, to me, this is an historical moment or an historical piece. Yes, I, I, I agree. Uh, it is uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the second woman to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, she died in 2020, and she was this incredible, uh, iconic force for good, in my opinion, force for good, force for liberal democratic values on the highest court in this country. She lobbied very successfully for equal pay for women, and she fought also very successfully against gender discrimination in, in her career, both before the Supreme Court and while a chief justice or justice of the Supreme Court. So um, I really uh, loved to juxtapose her initials, who, who she was an RBG, that's how she's referred to so often, um, with a lace collar, because a lace collar denotes, at least to me, this sort of a demure, old fashioned, beautiful, quiet, you know, home crafted piece. Mm -hmm. And yet she was so representative of giving women an equal, an equal say, equal pay, an equal seat at the table in society. Mm -hmm. So I, I really loved to honor her in, in, in that regard. So yeah, exactly. This was a, she represented many historical, very important moments. And I was very happy to try to capture them or one of them at least in 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 a haiku i probably don't know her full history but i know enough of it to know that she's you know she's a bit of a, a goddess as far as uh, women are concerned <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely now we are going to do a little bit more of history but before we go there should we have a little bit of what at least i think um is wistful and witty lorraine ah uh, sure these um Next two, both are, are uh, three lines each. Out of body experience, the long drive out of Texas. Out of body experience, the long drive out of Texas. Flattened boxes, the night squeezed out in the alley. Flattened boxes, the night squeezed out in the alley. Let's go back to the first one, the out-of-body experience. What I love about this one, again, I'm not American, so I could be completely wrong, but Texas is a whacking great big state, bigger than many countries in Europe, bigger than the one I live in, anyway, certainly. And so, and particularly when you, you, you read this one, out-of-body experience, the long drive out of Texas. It is wistful. But it's very playful as well. How did you, what were you thinking when you wrote it? I, I wanted to put something together that that had many layers of meaning. Mm -hmm. So yes, on on one hand, it, it Texas is an enormous state, and it is literally a long drive to mm -hmm. get from point A to point B or to exit the state. Um, and an out of body experience is just sort of surreal in in some ways. Uh, but I also what informed me as one layer of meaning in this poem as well is the threat at that time, I wrote this poem, there was a threat to Roe versus Wade. So women's legal access to abortion and Texas was one of the first states to enact local legislation and um, 
it was sort of a precursor event to what would eventually happen on a national level. So yeah. it, literally out-of-body experience could also refer to having an abortion. So there is that layer perhaps, or that image of someone in that situation, having that long drive to mm -hmm. access reproductive health care out of that particular state. I think probably someone closer to home, closer to your home, would get the layers very easily. Yeah, that. that's what I love about haiku is that so many readers can bring so many different interpretations to a poem. Maybe what the author intended might not. And it's just, it's, again, it's that kind of both and. There's, mm -hmm. There is no right or wrong way to read any poem, at least in, <laughs> according according to this writer and, and, and reader. Um, and I'm just uh, amazed and always just fascinated at what people bring to the work or what they bring, depending on the context that they're living, their community, their personal experience, obviously is going to shape how we receive all of this work. Latin boxes, the night squeezed out in the alley. And I think I've already said to you that I, I hope this one was nominated for a touchstone because on one level, I, I love the switch in perspective, the just disjunctiveness. It's hard to say that, disjunctiveness of it. I wish this was mine. I just I just love it. But again, I think it works on so many levels. Do you, do you want to take us through where you were coming from on this? Yeah, you know, I uh, had an image of a, a person having to sleep in an alley. And the literal truth is that people flatten boxes and they and they rest on them overnight. Uh, and then a little wordplay with squeezed out, the air leaving the box as you flatten it. Uh, I do like to use a little wordplay here and there, hopefully not too heavy, heavy handedly, but that was uh, an element of, his, of it as well. Uh, and then just the, the idea that a person sleeping in the alley, they're, they're, they're squeezing out their existence one night, one meal at a time. Mm. Uh, and that's that's uh, a horrible suffering, uh, mm. but this took it into slightly different territory, not quite as bleak, perhaps, uh, yeah. at least uh, on the first read. Um, but uh, but obviously there's there's a, a a humanitarian crisis afoot here as well, that's manifesting by this night being having to be squeezed out anywhere, not not in a bed at home, but in some alley. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is possibly what one of the examples of what Kristen was talking about when she said that um, you're giving voice to the failings of humanity, not letting you or or me, the reader, off the hook. But you're not you're really not doing it, as you said, in a heavy handed way. You're not really getting in our face and telling us, you know, this is wrong. This is, you know, this is terrible. You're giving us an opportunity to think about it. Well, come to our own conclusions you know and frankly if, if i took that opinion I, I would it would be very inauthentic because as much as i am active in my own community on homelessness issues and i lobby where i can and do what i can as one individual to do something helpful in this situation mm -hmm. i still will walk by an alley where people are living i bear witness to it at the same time that i try to help so in some way, it didn't really feel right for me to take this. Um, yes, this is, this is, yes, this is wrong. It's horrible, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. But I am also somewhat complicit in this because I'm a member of this culture. I can do what I can, but the problem still exists. Um, so simply, I guess, passing judgment on it or calling attention to it, that is that is one strategy. And I do have some work that really does that. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, as I, as I write more of this work, try to cultivate a, a sensitivity to my own my own complicity, my own involvement in part in being part of the problem, quite frankly, mm -hmm. that is not in my backyard, but is 15 minutes from my front door. And it's overwhelming as well I, uh, for yeah. all of us. And maybe writing some haiku about it is a way to surface some of that anxiety, some of that, um, some of those emotions that that are swirled around in how society is suffering around us and how we contribute, how we help, how we bear witness to it, how we look away. Mm -hmm. Uh, if anything, this collection probably is designed or hopefully designed to help people just not not look away. Mm -hmm. When I read Flattened Boxes, The Night Squeezed Out in the Alley, it left me sort of breathless, very anxious. And I can't quite put my finger on it. I think it's the second line that does it, The Night Squeezed Out. Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes me anxious. So I think it's a very, very, very effective. Did it come to you just like that or did you have to work on it i've written a few poems around that theme mm -hmm. and i just wasn't uh they didn't quite resonate uh well or they were you know too wordy or just wasn't quite succinct the images weren't clear enough or perhaps concrete enough so i had been working a while on that theme and this one just sort of emerged i think once i landed on boxes because I was dumpster for a while and dumpster appears in other work in this, in this sort of along these lines. And um, I've read other poems that really treat it very, very well, very successfully. So I was just looking for other concrete images. And once I think uh, boxes emerged, then I thought, okay, this, then the squeezed out deflating the box to then make it a bed of sorts became the, the final direction for it. And we're going to go on. We're, we're, we're still, going to stick with some hard themes, but we're moving further away from your own environment and into history again, not that the others aren't, but just uh, into history that possibly I have more connection with than the history going on on your side of the Atlantic, Lorraine. People will understand when they hear them. Chimneys, long shadows over Dachau. Chimneys, long shadows over Dachau. Air raid shelter. The quieter callings of stray cats and doves. Air raid shelter. The quieter callings of stray cats and doves. Now, to me, we're in Europe, European wars. Is that the case with the second one? We're, we're over in possibly the Ukraine? Yes. Yes, that's where we are. That, uh, that arose after a news report where there was the air raid siren in the background. And then that it just sort of flowed from there to juxtapose mm -hmm. um, the, the cats, the doves, the life that continues and, uh, and is perhaps soothing mm -hmm. in the context or ju when juxtaposed with that warning to take shelter because of imminent danger. Yeah. They work really, really well together. And then I was intrigued by the first one, 
And I wondered, what, why were you thinking of Dachau? Where, where does that come from? Uh, I was there in the mid-90s uh, as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father served in World War II, not in the European arena, but in the South Pacific. Oh. So I have written uh, a few brief pieces um, about him, about his memories he shared with me. But this one arose from my own experience. And it doesn't literally refer to the height of, of the chimneys, the architecture itself, but mm -hmm. it's just the idea that there is this obvious long shadow of of history, of sorrow, suffering, an incredible human tragedy mm -hmm. that is Dachau, that Dachau represents. And of course the chimney is obviously the symbol, uh, the literal uh, symbol of where um, people were exterminated and bodies were, bodies were burned. So there's that concrete reference as yeah. well. And the, the farther we get from the second world war, and from these atrocities, the, to me, the risk of forgetting them increases. Mm -hmm. And the generation who served their countries at that time are mostly gone. And we have rich oral histories and scholarship and film and video and all of these things. But I think I can, felt compelled to write about it because there still is this pull toward, toward amnesia. Mm -hmm. around this and even forces on every side of our media saturated world that are denying that that these atrocities ever happened this mm -hmm. being one of them so it i felt it important to speak about it directly i don't know if you traveled further around germany how much you travel you did but did you feel that there is a collective guilt that particular trip, no. Uh, I was a student of art history at the time, and so we went largely to uh, major museums. Okay. And this was a, a side trip that I did with a couple of my friends and classmates. But what what I'm involved with since then is mm -hmm. uh, Zen Peacemakers International, which I do mention in my book uh, as... Um, an organization that also inspired me to put this collection together because Zen Peacemakers International goes to Auschwitz every year and does uh, an, a, a bearing witness retreat where people from all over the world gather in Auschwitz for facilitated conversations mm -hmm. about exactly what you're referring to, about collective guilt, about mm -hmm. responsibility, about how they're really, after a certain point, is there is no difference at all between perpetrator, survivor, bystander. We are all there uh, as one human race, one human community that has suffered greatly because of that particular place, those events, that particular conflict. Mm. So yes, guilt, shame, terror, all of these things come up in and are held in sort of a series of sacred conversations, if you will, where people feel free to express everything that comes up around being in that place at that time mm -hmm. with those memories, with yeah. that war, with their ancestral connection to it, with their family connection to it. Not so much personal experience, but certainly the, the reverberation of that experience down generations. You're right. 
we need to remember. And it, I look at what's going on in, in the Ukraine and I wonder, did we learn much? You know, are we too far away from the last horrendous war in Europe anyway um, that we've forgotten? We are a very, very violent, litigious <laughs> species on the planet, apparently. And, Looks uh, like it, yeah. Yes, we we go through these cycles of of well-being and violence. It's really quite interesting to look at the span of history. So, you know, as as much as I think we're fated to continue to endure these cycles as long as they last, as long mm -hmm. as the planet will sustain them or we on the planet will sustain them i'm convinced the planet will sustain itself well beyond us thank you very much just leave it alone <laughs> <laughs> you know there are these tragedies these conflicts create i think always tremendous opportunity for people to be wonderfully compassionately engaged with each other in various ways and that is i think the the silver lining, the, the saving grace or whatever else you want to call it about these conflicts is because it really does invite us to be our best selves and to come up with ways to invent out of whole cloth ways to save each other. And I think that's a real blessing. And in the arc of my own work in perhaps reflecting on the darkness of so many of these situations, either you know personal abuse, societal discrimination, gross societal injustice, the sort of both end of that, of that tendency is to look at, with Bader Ginsburg, is to look at surviving an abusive relationship and moving on and healing and trying to lean into the good, the positive, the healing that, that can come out of all of these situations and a lot of the situations that I'm writing about. So Lorraine, Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here at Pete Towers today. I hope it's going to given our lovely listeners and viewers a lot of pleasure too. So I'm going to say goodbye to you now, but I know you've got one more powerful piece to read to us. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you, Patricia. It's just been an honour and a real pleasure to talk about this work with you. Thank you so much for having me. So here we have Lorraine reading her hybum, Throttle, from her book, Upwelling details in the show notes. Throttle. The Broncos on and off the brakes, so I ease up to leave room, more room between us. Some swerving each time the driver reaches over to tend to what I imagine must be an excited puppy in the passenger seat. Playdate. He pulls over to the curb so everyone behind him can make their way around. The sound of marbles. Those curious dog ears suddenly become the tussled hair of a young boy cowering as Bronco lifts himself out of his seat and leans over with both hands, hitting the floor. <laughs>